I am Charlie Taylor. I'm in Qatar. I run uh, hip hop numbers on X, where you use hip hop stuff to hide the Hey man, it's just the truth. I can't lie. <laughs> it's called X now. I don't know why. It's <laughs> just a dumb name. <laughs> yeah, I use hip hop statistics and do all sorts of stuff over on X. <laughs> Go find me on X <laughs> if you can. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, and I direct to the fifth element. My highlight of fifth element hip hop is rage. And this episode of DITD is sponsored by the IDA, the Institute of Disposable Arts, where they offer associate degrees in DJing, breakdancing, graffiti art, and rapping. Or if you choose to work behind the scenes, you can embark on careers such as AR Bitch Nigger, Shiesty Label Guy, Street Promotions Vandal, or half ass Producer. You'll study fake nigonometry, player pimpology, bling blingism, Airplay Economics. Many IDA graduates have gone on to work for such labels as Motown Universal, <laughs> Warner Brothers, Arista, and Columbia Records, to name a few. If you qualify, financial aid is available. Why waste another minute of your life? Get your free con, biatch. Enroll IDA today. Your future is now. I know, if you want me to do my Radio 1 voice. Hi guys, welcome to Breakfast Radio. Oh, oh no, God, I hate, I hate Breakfast Radio. Just breakfast back Radio to, is the worst. Oh, it's the worst ever. It's so oh. intolerable. I don't know how people listen They're to so it. It's so peppy at 6am. Oh, bro. What are you doing? It's unnatural. Be normal. It's really oh, unnatural. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, they have to be on drugs. Either drugs or just a, a, a scene amount of Red Bull. Hi, Ben. How's your week been? What have you been to do this week? Nas and Hip Boy dropped Magic 2. And actually, it's the best first listening experience I've had in the entire series so far. All the Hip Boy albums. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Like, I really, really enjoyed it. I think that Hip Boy did switch it up a little bit more with the production here. But again, it it's, seems to be jumping between contemporary and like looking back maybe five or ten years in Nas's career, it's very interesting the production that Hit Boy's providing him with. I'm, I'm very curious as to what their desire and like what they're trying to achieve with these these beats because it's not, you know, it, it is contemporary, but it's not like it's dragging Nas straight into just straight-up trap music. And it, you know, gets him into some really interesting pockets. Uh, there's some interesting double-time flows on here as well. But lyrically, I thought he was on point, absolutely. The 50 Cent feature was amazing. People were confused and like, oh my God, the 50 Cent features. 50 Cent is a brilliant rapper. Like, I've adored every single one of the albums that he's ever dropped. I just think he's a great rapper. And of course, he's, you know, he's, it's great to hear from him. Like, I'm stoked to hear from him. And the rest of the album is just great. Like, I really enjoyed it. Um, I haven't gone back to it yet, so not sure how I'm going to enjoy it on second listen. But I didn't. Mag- the original Magic was the one I liked the least out of the entire series. I th- I felt like it was just Lucy's. I genuinely felt like they were throwaways from the first two King's Diseases and, you know, like genuine seasides. But this feels like, again, a feature presentation. It feels like, you know, the studio album. Like, it doesn't feel like Lucy's at all. It feels incredible. So, oh, shout out Nas and Hippo. I don't know when this run's going to end. 
but it's a hell of a run. I'm I'm not enjoying all of it, but certainly enjoying this latest installment. Uh, Big Boss Vet dropped Resilience, you know, just bang. I think it's a little EP. I think it's seven tracks on here, yeah, 17 minutes. Check it out, man. It's just bangers, just straight up bangers. Uh, I Spice dropped the Deluxe to Like, and yeah, it's good. It's good. It's really good. Um, it's different. I thought Delhi was a pretty good track. Uh, there's some not really different flows or different ideas on here, but the production is a little bit different, and it does give I Spice some versatility that she may have been lacking on the original EP. I think it was just an EP when it came out. Um, it's 11 songs, so yeah, oh, it's an extra three songs. So, But yeah, no, it's good. It's it's solid. Shout out I Spice. Uh, Vale and Harry Fraud dropped Virtuoso, and this was great production from Harry Fraud. What what did he drop, produce the other week that I didn't particularly enjoy? Something else. Uh, Vices. No, yeah, I didn't actually like currency, Vices right? with yeah. Currency. I You know, I thought Currency was okay, but I, the production just felt lackluster from harry fraud this feels like top tier again harry fraud the track with 03 greedo is amazing about that um the track with action bronson vibrant amazing the track with twister bro it's it's so i was i didn't know who was on like i wasn't um looking at the the guest list someone comes in this like quadruple time flow and i'm like oh man twister would be proud and then i'm like wait that is twister what is wrong with me why i haven't heard him on a track in so long so it was very refreshing to hear twister and look i think the features are the best part and the beats of this album valley uh not not my favorite rapper in the world so take of that what you will smiley i did what i did that was an interesting album yeah it was all right it was all right it wasn't amazing uh and that was pretty much it i think shah ek dropped a project but it just kept like disappearing from my Spotify every time I try to play it. Like obviously it's not meant to be out. I don't I don't understand. But I could play like the first ten seconds of the song, and then Spotify would be like, no no no, it's not not meant to be out yet. I'm like, well, when when's it meant to be out? Why is it on Spotify already? So I don't know what happened there. But yeah, I didn't get to listen to that. So I think that's a next week one. But that was me, Charlie. What about yourself? Uh, yeah, I got some decent projects. Uh, start off with Sharice uh, with uh, Calling. Um, I've been to get into this for the past uh, couple of weeks. Been on the back burner. Uh, it's dropped in early July. But yeah, man, um, I've heard her on a few features here and there over the past few years. And uh, she's always just been a nice addition to tracks. Um, I was interested in just what a Charisse album uh, sounded like. Um, this goes for about 40 minutes, so pretty solid uh, for an album's worth. Pretty solid album's worth. And uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, there's just really uh, some good contemporary R&B, um, UK R&B, and uh, I'm here for that for 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 you know for uh, the longest of time. Um, so yeah, we just got we got another one. If you if you're if you're into that kind of thing and you want to be fed in that fashion, then you know you're always going to get something pretty much every week and uh Charisse is definitely uh one to look out for so shout out to Charisse. Uh Mahalia IRL another um, um at this point a stalwart in uh British R and B partly because of uh I was actually I saw a I don't know if it was a just a general post or an article about her past, but it's very fascinating that she got like when she got signed to a label like a thirteen and has and <laughs> has only just got out of it and uh and she gives off, she drops a lot of gems um, in how just the industry works. And um, this is this album definitely, and most of her work, to be honest, um, gives off this 
essence of she knows what she knows what goes well. She knows what um, she knows what sounds. Uh, she, she knows earworms basically, right? She knows how to produce an earworm, um, and this album is full of those. Every time I was listening to a track, I was just like, um, "This is definitely just if you if you if you want to hear her live, if you're just a fan of her and you hear her live." All of the songs are just sing-alongs, um, not in the not in the corny way, but you know, just like the hooks, are, hooks are sticky. Everything's an earworm at any possible moment, and um, you know, she's finessing the game. I think in that sense, um, she you know produces some really thoughtful uh, lyrics and um, you know just uh, personal lyrics as well. Um, she seems on the face, not trying to be parasocial here, but she seems like a decent enough person, right? Um, and it comes through on the music. Um, so, you know, all the respect to her on that front and, uh, welcome to independence, I guess. Um, what else? Uh, there was two more, I think. Uh, well, the other one was, uh, oh yeah, well, there you go. Nazi here, boy, magic to electric boogaloo. Um, I think out of the five, I think, I mean, King's disease two is still my favorite out of the five. Um, this is somewhere in the middle. Um, mate, not, not King's disease one is my least favorite. Um, but this is, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle. Uh, really enjoy it. I, I like the kind of change, slight switch up in the production. Um, some of the tracks, I think, didn't uh, hit for me personally on that front when it came to production. Um, I think it was either motion, yeah, it was motion. Uh, I think uh, Elvin Magic Johnson was kind of a bit eh, for me on the production. Um, but yeah, Nas was solid as well, of course. Um um, uh, you did this unique word percentage again, and uh, you know, you, I, I, I was, after that, after that, I listened to that. I listened to the album after you dropped that, and I was trying to like listen for like, hmm, has Nas ever said this word? And there yeah. was a couple. I was just like, yeah, he definitely has never said that before. It's and weird, it's right? Interesting. Yeah. It's 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 weird, but it's interesting in just with having that in mind while you're listening to it, and yeah. just trying to figure out how is he gonna actually, you know, put these new words in there because as you are well aware Nas's subject matter doesn't change too much. Yeah. Um, he sticks relatively he sticks relatively rigid in you know the in broad subject matter. Um, but it's how he describes these certain things, and you know this is lyricism. This this, this I'm literally describing the point of lyricism yeah, as a rapper, exactly. right? Where you yeah. where you you can say the same things and it sounds different because yeah. you said it different. Yeah. Um, and Nas does that. <laughs> better than most people better than pretty much anybody um so uh yeah respect to that um probably not album of the year material for me um there's a like i said a couple of tracks i went to into um but there's some there's some as as with all of the nas and Nearboy uh albums there's always one or two bangers in there that i'm just like mm, that's it that's that's the one that's the one uh, lastly, Jay Huss, Beautiful and Brutal Yard. Um, obviously, this dropped last week. I uh, didn't get to until this week. And um, I think overall, I prefer a Big Conspiracy out of the three albums. Um, I think this is solid. I think this is definitely... I think Jay Huss is at this point where he's just so uh, kind of immovable in the UK rap scene that he just... He can basically just drop whatever. And... Um, he kind of does here, I guess. Um, I feel like Big Conspiracy had a more had more just um, weight to it, and this one seems a little bit lighter. 
um, especially in subject matter and just in, I don't want to say effort. He does have this, you know, kind of like effortless attitude towards him in some tracks. Um, but, you know, with that said, there are some decent tracks in here that I love. Um, decent, love, okay, whatever. Massacre, um, Did My Militarian, Palm Tree, uh, Cream with CB, that was a really good drill track. Come Look, Alien Girl was really good, really enjoyed that one. Uh, playing Chess at the end, oh god, I love the end of that track. The end of that track is so crank. Cr- creamy crispy <laughs> creamy and crispy fuck it um but yeah i was kind of a bit middling with the features uh, i didn't really like nice body with georgia smith i found that a bit a little bit i'm trying to find a better word but um just a little bit redundant in the album overall for me it kind of just came and went um obviously no, no not doesn't need to be said but there was no need for drake to be on that the who told you track um that was purely just numbers running up there um there were there are so many artists that could have been put on that track and it would have hit and the, f- the problem is i really like the start of that track like he told you my man don't dance it bangs it bangs and then he comes on and just kills it, it just it, it's actually that um that rdc world video where they're hit they're listening to a track and then the feature comes in then their face stops and it goes like stop the track stop the track now literally that literally that video in my head um burn boy masculine wasn't really too into that track, uh, Popcorn on Killy. Just I, I, I'm just not into Popcorn's voice at all. Man, most man, of the I love time. both I those tracks. It, I just find it a bit, eee! just find it a bit higher for me. I'm just like, eh, nah, not into that. Um, but yeah, funny enough, I feel like the his, the tracks without features. I feel like I prefer, and I find that a bit weird because obviously when it comes to people like J Hus, the 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 features add on to the mysticism. And um, yeah, J House has a weird aura around him. Like the people that people that support him is very it's very interesting. Um, uh, just how they have this. Uh, oh, my my life has in my life is is crap without J House dropping. You know what I mean? Like a year without J House dropping is just a a, a pointless year. Useless, um, wasted year. Yeah, wasted year. It's like I don't know whether they are actually genuinely serious or not, or if they're just. Or they're just memeing, but uh, yeah, I, I constantly just see J Hus hype, and I am I just going down the overhype route? Yes, I am. Honestly, like uh, I feel, but I don't know. I feel like the tracks I like are tracks that he won't probably perform live, if that makes any sense. And he's just one of those eyes for me. Where same with not comparing the two, but same to Big Sean, where there's Big Sean tracks that I like, but he's never going to play it live. Because they don't, because they're not like that. They're not, you know, uh, I don't fuck with it. You, it's not, they're not those tracks. What? Uh, perform live. You don't reckon he would perform what? that live? That's his, that's massive. No, no, no. I'm saying he would perform that live. Uh, I'm not listening to that track. I'm mean. listening to other tracks that I find that have more depth, but I don't think he will perform those. And it's the same with Jay Huss. Like, he's going to, He's gonna t- he's gonna turn on who don't you? Uh, um, oh fucking! Hell, I forgot the name of the fucking track. The one with Drake, um, and he's not gonna play. I don't think he'll play playing chess. I don't know, um, but the fact that I'm not really sure that he would, um, and instead maybe go back to the back catalogue and play like a, you know Fisherman or whatever, um, is kind of just where I stand on that front. Um, so, but that's just I guess me and why I don't see certain people live. Um, but anyway. Uh, that's for another day, I guess. 
On to the topic of this episode, and it is a top five dead or alive for me personally. I've been so excited to do this one all week, well, for the past two weeks, technically. <laughs> I was supposed to do it last week and then, then had to uh, make a quick audible. Um, so uh, we ended up doing the Hip Hop Neighbours last week, uh, which was pretty solid. And uh, yeah, we've uh, just had to move on for another week, but it's all the more reason to just listen to some Master Race for the past two weeks, which I've been doing. And uh, it's been absolutely beautiful. Um, but yeah, funny enough, Master Race is kind of just one of those eyes for me personally that I got into, well, very late, right? <laughs> I, I literally, I I spun, I remember spinning the falling season for the first time. I probably told this when we did the, we did do a contemporary call uh, where I talked about uh, the falling season with Master Race. And I probably told this story before, <laughs> um, but I'll tell it again for the, for the sake of it. Um, I was I was in it was twenty eight well obviously twenty I think twenty eighteen uh, for me and uh, I listened to that album kind of I have no idea why I listened to it but I just spun it and um, I was just I was just like oh this is absolutely crazy and uh, we'll we'll get into that a little bit more um, with uh, you know that that whole section is going to be at risk of repeating <laughs> repeating myself uh, from the contemporary cool episode but um, yeah man uh, just ever since then I've just been very intrigued by Master Race as a as an artist and just his unique place um, in hip hop of how influential he actually has been, um, but yet also be extremely underrated. I feel yeah. Um, and I saw him. I remember seeing him. I saw him live um, a few years ago. Um, unfortunately, without Marco Polo, who was, um, I think, his, uh, he had to take ten to his uh, father at that point during the during that particular side of the tour. Um, but yeah, it was just uh, he was just so so top tier. Um, and um, not to ruin not to ruin the story, but um, you know, there's 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 things in Master Ace's life um, that. A warrant just respect for the fact that he's still performing the in, to this day, um, and uh, I salute him entirely for that, uh, for keeping on, keeping on, and actually keeping on uh, creating. Um, so yeah, with that said, Ben, what have you got for us? Well, if there ever was a true champion of the underground, Master Master Ace would be the perfect fit for the role. I think over a very very long and storied career, he has dropped five solo albums, eight collab albums, and a wild amount of guest spots. Discogs lists him as a featured artist on over 150 albums and a staggering 333 mixtapes, which is a lot. And uh, there's actually an interview, I, have, I think it was on People's Party um, with Talib. That's the name of his pod, I think, Talib. Um, yeah, I, you got it. I think he said that he's he's the most featured artist ever of all time, which again is a statistic that I could probably figure out, but I couldn't be bothered because it would take a lot of time. But he certainly has been featured on a lot of music and a lot of international music as well. Like he doesn't, you know, he collaborates with a lot of people outside of the US. So his forays into mainstream music have been just that. They've just been forays. Sitting on Chrome, his 95 album with Master Ace Incorporated peaked at number 69 on the Billboard 200. But it's the album that Master Ace criticizes the most in his back catalog. He even cites it as a reason why he decided to turn his back on the mainstream and pursue a career on his own terms, which is a story we're about to get into. But Master Ace thrived in a time when you couldn't spit a solitary mid-bar. You just couldn't. Like, you were fighting to be a top-tier MC 
with like the legendary heavy hitters of the game. So actual pioneers of the art. And his skill was so vibrant as an MC that his two big breaks actually came when he wasn't even trying to put himself forth as an MC. His ability spoke for itself and opportunities presented themselves to him. So his start came via rap contest that he managed to win back in the 80s. And you know, depending on where you read this, either 85 or 86. Now a friend had convinced him to compete. And it wasn't really on Master Ace's radar. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to be an MC at this point. You know, he his parents preached education, and that was his plan to go to college and to get a degree and to you know start working in the industry, whatever industry he chose. So he said that the first prize was studio time with Marley Marl, um, who by this stage was on his way to hip hop ubiquity. But second prize was five hundred dollars, and Master Ace wanted that money. Uh, he decided that he wanted to come second. He didn't actually want to win. He did not need the studio time, he felt. He would much be better off, better served with the $500, but uh, he won. And apparently Master Ace said that he came in there with his own production and his own music, and everyone else was just like rapping over backing tracks, but because he had his own songs, he just completely eviscerated the competition. But it seems that Marley Mile was in no position or no such plan to honor this studio time. So Master Ace... Uh, speculated in interviews that he was actually ducking his calls for months after the competition victory. So eventually got hold of him, set up a time, turned up, and lo and behold, Marley Marl was not home. So Master Ace said he waited six hours at Marley Marl's house until Craig G turned up and kept him company, which is wild amount of time to wait. Like, you know, I mean, of course you're gonna wait, like it's your big opportunity, but still. So I'm gonna read Master Ace's words from this interview with David Marr. So he says, uh, Marley put us in the back bedroom of the apartment and had Shan do the drum program for my demo. I found out years later he put me in the back because he didn't want to give me his time or take me seriously because I knew he knew I didn't have any experience. So basically, Marley Marl had no you know plans or ideas of you know doing anything with uh, Master Ace, so he put him in the back room, you know, set him up with there, and that was kind of it. So Master Ace, but at this point now had the ear of Marley Marl and an in with the legendary Juice Crew, which is home to icons like Roxanne Shantae, MC Sham, Biz Marquee, Big Daddy Kane, Cool G Rap, Craig G. Um, you know, it's amazing. Believe it or not, at one point Master Ace was just driving Craig G around. And it was actually that connection that led to his moment, like his big moment, the one that everyone talks to. And once, I'm gonna read uh, the, the words that he said to David Marr again in that interview. He says, if you look at the back cover of Marley's compilation project in Control Volume 1, you'll see a bunch of us standing next to a Learjet. The symphony was recorded right after that photo shoot. Marley's goal was to record one more song for his release. I didn't find this out later. I didn't find this out till later, sorry, but I guess it was supposed to be a cool G-Rap and Big Daddy Kane song, like a cypher with them going back and forth. After that photo shoot, Craig weaseled his way into getting a part of it as well. They were cool with Craig, so it was no problem, and I was Craig's ride that day, so that's how he ended up there. Um, I was driving everyone at the time. It seemed like it was always either me or Marley driving since we were the only ones with cars. Sham was supposed to be on the song too, but I found out later he had no intentions of coming. I had no thoughts of getting on the song or nothing. So just being there was cool for me. I was already a Big Daddy Kane fan, and I was dying to hear everyone else. When it came time to get on the mic, everyone was deciding who'd go first. They were going round and round and round. So Marley looked at me and asked if I had a rhyme ready just to loosen the room up. I really had no intention of even keeping my verse. Back then, it was about being the anchor leg and going last. No one wanted to go first, so that's why on the song I was like, I don't care who went first or last. 
So rather than even bother to sit down and write an original verse for this track, Master Ace was so, like, he at this point, he's not thinking he's even going to be on the track. He's just like, oh, I'll just, just spit a verse. But it was so good that they just included it as the, the jump-off verse, and that was pretty much Master Ace's start in the industry. Like, he just happened to be Craig G's driver, and they said, hey, do you want to spit a verse on here? And he's like, yeah. And it was so good next to, like, legends, like straight-up legends, that they were just like, yep. 100%. So now he became part of Cold Chillin', one of the most iconic labels in hip-hop history. The Hip-Hop DX asked him back in 2019 what he think he'd be doing right now without Cold Chilling. Now he responded, my guess is that I wouldn't be in the music business. I wouldn't have had a 30-year career in music and I probably wouldn't be a big wig. Oh, sorry, I probably would be a big, big, big wig at one of these advertising agencies somewhere in Manhattan or around the country living an entirely different life than I am now. So Master Ace did graduate with a degree in marketing in 1988. Um, and yeah, it's very interesting. So Dan Manella back in 2004 asked Master Ace how he felt being one of the first major rappers to graduate from college. And he replied, for the first time in my life, I was living on my own and in a different state. It took some getting used to. Only 1% of the student population was African-American my freshman year. I felt a bit out of place and students were constantly assuming that I was there to play basketball or football since most of that 1% were athletes. I was one of only a handful of African-American students there that was not on a sports team. So obviously you can now see the beginnings of even Disposable Arts, which is his biggest album or his, you know, the, the album that everyone talks about. Obviously there's the college skits and, you know, this is a huge part of... Uh, Master Ace's life and he's his life and he's very fascinating in interviews. He doesn't talk about things he has no interest in, which I find I, I adore about him. The Danger Zone podcast was so painful because the host kept like hijacking the interview with his own stories, and Master Ace would just sit quietly until he was finished and then just go on telling the story that he wanted to. And it's interesting to see how he synthesizes his experience into his legacy. So in the Hip Hop DX interview, they asked him if he had any idea at the time that he was becoming a pivotal part of hip hop history. And he responds, I couldn't see the long-term big picture of what I was involved in. My only goal was to hear my record on the radio. Once that happened, I'm like, I'm good. I didn't look at it like it was a big deal because I thought it was something that was going to be short-lived. So that's how he viewed his career for a lot of his career, even all the way up to Disposable Arts, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But he dedicated himself to it, but he always kept something on the side for when it inevitably, in his mind, fell away and it was over for him. And it's part of what makes him an incredible MC and a unique storyteller because Master Ace has always been a realist. He's always willing to embrace the potential of failure so it may save him from an unexpected fall. And he popped up twice more on the Marley Mile album, In Control, on the cuts Keep Your Eyes on the Prize and Simon Says, which led into his debut single together, with the B-side being Letter to the Better. Now, by this stage, he was an anointed member of the Juice Crew, and anointed members get solo albums, and we get Take a Look Around, which is his debut solo album. Yeah, so um, this is actually, uh, in terms of listening for this episode, it's the first time I've actually listened to Take a Look Around, because A, it's not on streaming, and B, I just yeah. never actually you know, bothered to actually, find, <laughs> to actually give it a look and give it a spin, hence why we're here, hence why we do this pod. Um, but yeah, uh, before I get into it, quick shout out to uh, the Don that is uh, our boy Connor, um, who actually provided uh, and is one of the YouTube goats um, that I constantly uh, hail. You have uh, to link me to people, his, his YouTube because I never even knew he people. did this. 
those, those random ass people that just post up a certain album on YouTube. Shout them out. For everyone to spin because anal streaming. It's legendary. Shout out to Connor for putting uh, uh, Master Race's album on because uh, I was just, <laughs> I, did, I didn't even I didn't even know it. Literally, like you said, I didn't even know that he did this. Um, and it's there and it's great. And uh, so, and he actually, unlike the most people that, uh, you know, just drop the album and keep it moving, um, Connor actually drops a little bit of, um, little bit of, uh, you know, commentary, um, on the descriptions as well for every track. Um, so, and he kind of just walks you through it a little bit in the description. Uh, I think there's a link in that description for like an entire just piece about I assume this album. Um, so you know, feel free uh, to go spin that. Um, literally, just type up, take a look around. You'll see a uh, Connor Herbert um, on the on the thing. So shout. Just wanted to give him uh, a big ups on that front. Um, but yeah, so the album itself. Um, this is <laughs> this is a very interesting. Uh, I think capsule. Uh, for Master Race as an artist because it's not like any of his other albums. Um, this album is so, so of the time. Uh, it is, I mean, in some ways it's, just, it's it's great that it's like that because it's a very, excuse me, it's a very interesting, uh, like I said, time capsule um, of hip-hop at that time um, because that's kind of what I consider it I, can't, I I just see it as just one of those um, one of those albums that sit there as a placeholder for oh you want you want to spin an album by you know a, 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 by an album you want to spin an album from around this time literally on the cusp of the 90s 1990 specifically um Take a look around. is is a great freaking shout. Uh, just to give yourself a spin. Um, Marnie Mal, Mister C, obviously on production uh, for the majority of it. Um, great, great uh, freaking uh, samples uh, uh, thrown all over the spot. There is just uh, an always a sample. I think on every track, um, and that's just so nineties, right? Pre pre biz, uh, pre. Uh, pre-biz case so um you know definitely one of those uh hallmarks uh of an album uh and when it w- and when it actually dropped i feel like if i gave you a track from around this time you could pretty much decide for yourself whether it came from you know pre-biz or post-biz uh, 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 uh court case but anyway uh yeah this album is kind of long for me personally um it's it's a lot of, there's a few tracks that just um go on and kind of on uh for me personally um but it's a it's a it's a fine album for what the for the 1990s i i feel um it probably gives off an essence of something a little bit uh, a little bit earlier uh right considering that obviously Marley Marl and Mr C are you know premier uh, one of the two of the premier uh, producers of the of hip hop in the 80s especially and uh, you know, while it factually drops in the '90s, this album is so firmly rooted in what '80s hip hop was. Um, I personally enjoy it. Let, let it to the better. I really like the lyricism on that. Um, I like the <laughs> impersonation of Bismarcky uh, on "Me and the Biz." I'm interesting uh, very... how people react to that because I had the opposite reaction. I was like, "Oh, yeah." Know I mean, I, I, it's it's. 
I I knew it on the face. I kn- I knew that was a thing. I just never listened to it. Um, and just knowing the story, uh, past it makes it kind of uh makes it kind of uh, funny to me. Um, uh, Curtis Mayfield on uh, the other side of town. Love, love, love that sampling. Love the use of it. Love just everything about that. Four minus three, where it's kind of just the symphony part two, but just with Master Race on it. Um, so that's kind of uh, an interesting, uh, just um, kind of interesting a- a- a addition. Uh, moving on with Soul to Souls, uh, kind of a you know keep on moving uh, kind of essence to it. Really like that. Um, but yeah, man, Brooklyn Battles. I like the lyricism to that. Um, but yeah, man, this is a it's a very a very uh, <laughs> it's a it's kind of forgotten, right? It's it's kind of forgotten. Um, when you think of Cold Chillin', you think of um, you think of the biz, the cup, the you know the biz albums. You think of Big Daddy Kane and the uh, the absurd just lux- luxury of his uh, uh, co- uh, album album artworks. You think of the Marley Mall in Control albums. You think of the uh, Cool G Rap albums, and obviously Roxanne Chante and Bad Sister. Um, but yeah, take a look around. Just uh, you know, just kind of sits there um, as, uh, as as behind it. And uh, like I said, it, it doesn't. It's, it's, <laughs> this album is so different from the rest of Ace's catalogue. Um, partly because I just feel this is probably one of those albums where you know he had the he had the skill, um, but he didn't have quite you know anything to say, so to speak. There's a lot of just simple braggadocio raps here um, it, on this album, which kind of leads me to that to the point I'm making. Um, compared to the rest of them, which seems to have this, you know, laser focus and this uh, and this uh, precise energy towards them. But um, as eighties albums go, that technically dropped in the nineties, it's uh, it's it's an interesting time capsule for sure. Yeah. Um, so obviously, this album was actually propelled by the drama around. Me and the Biz, which is a fake duet between Master Ace and his fellow Juice crew member Biz Marquis. So the beat was originally produced by Marley Mile exclusively for Biz, but right around the time he came to record over it, the two actually had a falling out. So Master Ace loved the beat and he spoke to Biz and asked if he could record, if they could record that song together. And Biz said he was happy to, just not at Marley Mile's studio. They'd have to record it at Biz's studio. So Master Ace went to work. He said that Big Daddy Kane was writing for Biz Marquee at the time and he'd record Biz's part of the song, Big Daddy Kane would, and then give the tape to Biz, who would walk around all day listening to it and memorize it. So Master Ace did the same. He recorded both sets of vocals, putting on a fake Biz voice to differentiate the two. When time came for Biz to record it, Marley Mile refused to go to Biz Marquee's studio to record the track. So Marley Mile came with a new pitch to Master Ace, put the song out as it is, with the fake Biz voice creating a fake duet. Uh, he claimed that no one in the mainstream had switched their vocals up like that yet to play a different role, which is not true because Slick Rick had already been doing it. Uh, but in this case, Master Ace was impersonating another MC and a friend at that, and it was a bit tricky. Master Ace wasn't too excited about it. He told David Ma, it was definitely something I was not super enthusiastic about. 
I was a young dude and it was my first album, so I went along with it. Warner Brothers heard it and decided that it would be the single. There's nothing else on that album that sounds like that. I didn't want people to think the whole album was like that. I didn't want people to get the wrong idea of the type of artist I was. They wanted to push this because Biz was a proven artist in sales and major labels just want a light, easy, digestible track to sell. So they wanted it to push based on Biz's name, not mine. I took that as disrespect and I fought against it. But ultimately, the head of Warner Brothers at the time, his name is Benny Medina. I love it how rappers just like talking about, you know, a, a label exec that they don't like. And they're like, his name was Benny Medina. Like, you know, names him. I love that. So he said that Benny Medina put his foot down on a conference call saying, if me and the biz isn't the single, then there will be no other singles for the album, which is just, bro, this is a terrible story. Even the concept of the video with the puppet was corny. While the rest of the whole album is serious lyrical stuff about responsibility and community and uplifting and improvement. So it doesn't help, of course, that most interviewers don't do any fucking research and aren't aware that Master Ace has said this multiple times in interviews. It remains one of his crowning commercial achievements as an artist. And of course, it's something people do even to this day. Name a song after a famous artist and hope you get a boost in the algorithms. It's good to know, I guess, it's a tried and tested way to get engagement. But it's also good to know that Master Ace was not particularly happy to be involved in it. Um, because, you know, it is, yeah, when I first heard it, I, you know, it was a bit shocking to me. I genuinely thought it might be a diss. Um, and when I read the story about it, I'm like, oh, okay, still, you know, I don't know. I don't know. He just felt a little bit disrespectful in the sense that Biz was just such a vibrant personality and he was so unique. I never felt like you could imitate biz you know but anyway i mean that's just master ace has said that he's a little bit uncomfortable with it and he was very very young at this point and trying to succeed in the music industry and i you know i don't blame him at all for doing what the label basically strong-armed into into him into doing um as i said the, the video was a bit weird too uh, master ace was playing kind of puppet master and there's a biz puppet who appears to be rapping the words to biz as part of the song so yeah it was just interesting but it wasn't the end of Master A sadly ceding control to a major label, but it was definitely a huge reason why he turned his back on the system after his second album. But the track blew up enough that Master Ace's album wasn't been used as a doorstop at Warner. You know, he was actually being sold. He was selling copies. He spoke to the Boombox about the process of dropping the album uh, when he spoke to them back in 2015. I'm going to read some of his words because it gives good context around his emotions regarding the album. He says... I'm listening to the rhymes that Kane is putting down, Cool G Rap is putting down. I'm looking at all these hit records Biz Marquee is doing, and Biz was probably one of the most popular dudes. MC Sham was rated as a very, very talented MC and songmaker. Somali had put his signature on all of these cats' careers, and I just wanted to make sure that whatever I was doing was going to measure up to what those guys were doing, because I didn't want to look like the cat that couldn't hang out with them. So there was definitely pressure. Now, the interviewer uh, lets the questions you know kind of calm down a little bit and then he hits him with this and i feel like this is a direct response to master asia's expression of pressure he asks why there is no other juice crew member featured on the album and master Ace replies you got to understand features weren't a big thing back then it wasn't even a big deal and i i, I say that to say I feel like the interviewer was implying that Master Ace didn't get any of the heavy hitters on his album because he was a little bit scared of being outrapped. You know what I mean? So Master Ace's response is, uh, I was going to have Biz on the album. That's the only artist that I actually asked to be on the album. And he actually declined to be on the record. And then he talks about the story. But basically, they were talking about the fact that, you know, not a lot of uh, albums had features back then. And nowadays, 
a featureless album to us is like a unicorn. It's like, oh my God, you took the risk. Like, it's a risk. It's a big risk to do a featureless album. Like Gunner, Gunner did a featureless album and it's still in the top 10 and people are like, oh my God, what is this? So of the 10 Juice Crew albums that came out prior to Master Ace's debut, I've had a look at how many features they all had to see if Master Ace is, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to call him out. I was just curious. I was just curious. So MC Shan, Down By Law, one feature. Shit on Biz- his Ben. <laughs> this, just, this justifies Master Ace. Bismarcky going off one feature. Long Live came three features. Marley Miles in Control Volume 1 doesn't count because it's literally an album of features. MC Shan, Born To Be Wild, zero features. Um, Road to Riches by Cool G G Rap and DJ Polo, zero features. Uh, Big Daddy Kane, It's a Big Daddy Thing, seven features. Biz Never Sleeps, zero. Shantae, Bad Sister, one. Played Again, Shan, three. But those were additional vocal features. They weren't even rappers. Cool G Rap had five, including Kane and Biz. Smooth Assassin by Granddaddy IU had one. And Big Daddy Kane's Taste had nine features. So Big Daddy Kane had a lot of features on his albums. MC Shan did not have a lot. And so there's absolutely nothing wrong with Master Ace saying a lot of rappers weren't having features. Biz wasn't even having features. So, you know, it's, it's a common practice back then. Um, so, yeah, man, it's a, it's an interesting. So Master Ace even said this about the debut single because to me the story of this album is the major label. Like, yeah, it sounds amazing. I love this album. I really do. I enjoyed it immeasurably. And Master Ace is so freaking smooth, man. He is incredibly smooth on the mic. And he's just a great MC. But... The problem with this album, the context is it really began his battle with major labels. He says about the the debut single together, at that moment, that was all I had and I didn't want to come out with that record because I felt that was the perfect record for me vocally. The rhymes, every line was crazy and I told Marley, I want to save this record. I don't want to put this record out. Let's save it for the album. And he was like, you're going to make better stuff. I was just afraid that I was going to waste a good record lyrically. The Loop is by the Young Hearts. That's my mother's record collection. And when I laid the song down, I was like, I don't want to waste this record. Marley talked me into letting it be the first lead-off single on Prism, and it worked. But he talks about, like, every step of the way. Like, apart from recording the album himself, and, like, you know, that process wasn't affected in any way, but everything else was affected by major labels. Like, every other aspect of this album, and... You know, that's what happened in the end. It, it really sent him and pushed him in a different direction than he was originally maybe going to go. He even says at the start, all I wanted to do was hear my song on the radio. That was early Master Ace. You know, as we get into the second, third, fourth albums, his you know perspective changed dramatically. And a lot of it came from his experience with this first album. And, you know, this album is... It's an incredible, you know, he has a story for every track on here. When you talk about, when he talks about it in in interviews, um, most of them are inspired by growing up in Brownsville, the stories of New York that the new wave of mainstream East Coast rappers weren't talking about yet and wouldn't really until the middle of the decade, to be honest. There's always been a tension between the two coasts in the way people speak about Master Ace's career. Certainly, that's what I've learned from watching so many interviews with him. I see his content far more aligned with the West Coast, you know, early in his career, much grittier, more interest in stories of hardship that they were all surrounded with, rather than being the journey of succeeding and thriving within the structure of capitalism, which I sometimes felt like the East Coast was more focused on, you know. And Master Ace was a huge fan of Gil Scott Heron, who we spoke about last week. In fact, uh, Gil Scott Heron inspired the title track and the way that Master Ace describes his process on that song gives great insight into the story he was trying to tell with his debut album. He says, 
I speak about the ills of the hood, the positives, the negatives, the yin and the yang about what's going on around me. And I think I speak from the perspective of being a little worried and concerned about where my neighborhood is going and how things could be better than they are. So it was definitely inspired by Gil Scott Heron and his spoken word piece, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And from that point, I said, I'm going to do a poem on every single album. I ended up doing something similar on Slaughterhouse and Sitting on Chrome, but after those albums, I stopped doing them. Um, and so that was it, man. And that I think that embodies the album. Like He really was trying to speak on the positives and negatives. He was trying to tell the story of the people around him and major labels got their hand in in his career and started trying to push him in a direction um and from there we get slaughterhouse which is uh yeah the, i guess a collaboration lp you know yes um so uh, one of two one of the two albums that um, was put under master race incorporated uh which featured the likes of uh I see you rock, uh, so Ice Unique and Rock Diesel, uh, Lord Digger, um, uh, Lachey, who is also uh, Master Ace's uh, wifey, and uh, also Paula Perry. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the center of the group, um, and uh, I see you rock um, is <laughs> kind of just that fun amalgamation of the of the three names, which um, I didn't actually learn until researching. It. I was just thought it was a yeah, I don't know what I thought it was, but anyway, um, this actually provides um a uh, a platform for uh, Ace to also produce. Um, he produces a, a majority of these uh, tracks on Slaughterhouse. I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I think uh, if I'm corrected, so nine out of fifteen. Um, also including co-producing. Um, there's also some co-producing in there as well. Um, but yeah, uh, it's funny you say West Coast because <laughs> I feel like this album kind of uh, takes a shot at West Coast rap in general. Um, yes. But not even just yeah. that, I guess just um, gangster rap, right? And uh, what was at that time classed as gangster rap, quote unquote, which was pretty much um, the stuff that was coming from the West Coast uh, post NWA, Schoolie D, Ice T, etc., etc. Um, and yeah, this kind of, this whole, it, and it also kind of starts this, this exploration that Ace was doing creatively, um, that comes into fruition with his next solo project, which we will get into obviously the uh, disposable arts and, and, and beyond. But I wanted to talk about these Master Race Incorporated albums, um, as well. Um, even though we don't usually do collab albums uh, on top of the solos, but I feel like this was a good, um, because you know, if you go straight between um, uh, Ace's solo records, take a look around, and then Disposable Arts, that's nearly ten years. Um, there's, you know, that uh, 1990 to 2001. That's <laughs> that's eleven years, right? Um, from release to release, um, and then you have these uh, two Master Race Incorporated albums uh, in the right in the middle of '93 and '95. Um, so I feel like these are very important to talk about when talking about. Uh, Master Ace's uh, discography, even though he has other um, other uh, 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 collaborative albums, um, but anyway, uh, this one has his name on it for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> it's a little bit more important, uh, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, this album is very interesting, um, just from a uh, from a um, what's the word a contextual standpoint, I guess, and subject matter. Um, this whole it, it gets it's very obvious from the beginning. Um, that this album is kind of just a 
uh, I don't know if you want to want to call it well satire. It's basically satirizing gangster rap. It's you know providing that critique with the you know just talking about guns and killing other black men, etc., etc. Um, and it's a very <laughs> I kind of I think it sets the foundation for what comes to be Master Race's best work. Um, while this doesn't exactly tell a whole story overall. Um, the second album definitely doesn't. Um, but this one kind of just, kind of just takes a topic and satirizes it, uh, with slaughterhouse and gangster rap. Um, and it, you know, go, they go sort of a decent way with it. You know, they incorporate, huh, get it, incorporate uh, West Coast influence beats. Beats, right? They got that. They got that funk influence. You know, in in some of the production, which obviously was a thing. Uh, for the West Coast, pretty much up till the two thousands, um, so yeah, they pre- they do really you know put an effort into the what I would judge it as a loose concept, it's not like a tight concept, but you know a concept nevertheless. Um, you know, Jeep ass nigga is 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 a, a highlight, definitely very uh, a very amusing track. Uh, great bass on that, I really love that. Um, Jack B. Nimble, uh, personally for me, uh, Who You Jackin, uh, Crazy, <laughs> Crazy Drunken Style is kind of interesting, uh, but yeah, it's a, there's some, again, it's kind of a longish album, it's one, it's 65 minutes, um, I would have, you know, bit, been happy with a little bit lesser, um, but overall, I think it's more about just the conce- concept and the context of this album, the, co- the concept obviously being the satirical element um, which I think is done pretty solidly. I think I think they get the point across. It may be um, for some a little bit, you know, uh, uh, what's the what's the word? Um, uh, hammer, hammering it home, kind of <laughs> kind of thing. Um, you could make that argument definitely uh, that critique. Um, but you know, they they do they do the job. And contextually, in Master Race's discography, I feel like it's that beginning of. You know, creating the concepts and not just, uh, you know, not just rapping for rap's sake. Um, having a, uh, having a meaning behind what you're saying and overall, and he uses it throughout through the albums. Um, and that kind of, you know, is is very interesting in how. Uh, I don't think there's, I wouldn't say there's many hip hop artists that actually, you know, take an album and actually make it a serious thing as basically what I'm saying is he doesn't focus on singles too much and it's all about the album like you can listen to an, a single and it could be good and they are fine they're fine right but it's about the album it's about what you listen to for for the whole of 65 minutes and um yeah while you while you may think he's being a bit it's being a bit ham-fisted uh with the sat- with the satirical nature um I do think it's a very uh, intriguing album I'm curious, did you pick up on that from the album or were you already aware that it was a satirical album in that in that vein? Um, I mean, I think it it comes to... Well, I think once it got, once it got to Jeep, uh, mm, yeah, once it got song. to Jeep, I was just like, oh, I see. <laughs> it, it, started, it started dawning on me because initially, yeah, it was... Um, when you listen to it without the context, it can... It, it's, it can I can imagine it being very... Uh, very jarring um, of just hearing him and everybody else, just uh, him and the crew talking about these things. And it's just like, oh, okay. 
intriguing, especially uh, if you listen to his like more recent works. Um, you may think like, did he have an epiphany somewhere? Did he have a near death experience at some point? Uh, but yeah, no. I, I think once he got to Jeep, I was like, okay, it's clicking now. It's it's, it's making sense. Um, I probably could have gone there earlier, but yeah, I was on the train, so. I mean, it, it actually charted on the Billboard 200 for the first time. Um, most of the rapping comes from Master Ace. He has eight production credits under his production alias Ace One. Um, and look, Master Ace is nothing if he's not a deep thinker about hip-hop culture and his own place in it. He was unhappy with the results of his debut album, unhappy that the label had forced him into releasing singles he wasn't okay with. He told Angus Beatty in 2003 he was afraid of being seen as a gimmick rapper and thus a rethink of his career was in order. On top of that, the major label was experiencing its own issues. Uh, There was an overhaul which saw half of Cold Chillin's roster cut by their parent label Warner Brothers without, ironically, any warning. Master Ace needed to find a new home. He told David Marr, I'll never forget, there was a sheet of paper that listed every artist on the label. At the time, it was like 16. There was a line on the paper representing who was staying and who was going. Above the line was staying, below the line was getting dropped. I'll never forget my name was the first below the line. Um, and Jizzle was cut as well. Jizzle was part of the label. So I want to read some of Angus Beatty's words from The Quietus on the 20th anniversary of the record because I think they are pertinent. He says, The album that emerged in 93 wasn't exactly what many listeners might have expected. Partly this reflected an enlarged creative contingent. Ace was now a band, Master Ace Incorporated, which included the rapper Paul Perry, uh, rapper producer Lord... Uh, I haven't written his name down. I apologize. R&B vocalist Lord, uh, Lord yep. Yeah, uh, R&B vocalist uh, Lashia. Lashia. Have I said her name correctly? Lashay. Lashay. Uh, I apologize. There was little work for any of them behind the mic. Perry appeared on two tracks. Lashay just one. Um, Digger got a few verses in, and alongside his blues brothers partner Witchdoc, which co-produced five uh, five of the tracks. Mostly, though, the different sound and approach was down to the fact that Ace didn't just make music from within the context of his personal experiences in the rap industry. This was an MC who couldn't avoid looking at the bigger picture, which in 93 meant the rise of the fake gangster. It was a picture that he found repulsive. I remember one night I was listening to the Stretch and Bobito show uh, back in New York. Ace told me in an interview conducted during the Jack the Rapper convention in Atlanta in August 93. So it's back from 93, this interview. They always have special guests on and they'll rap some freestyles and stuff. And these guys came on and they had a little interview and they were like, let's play one of your old records. They played an old song and it was like a rap ballad, a rap love ballad. I guess it came out in 91 or something like that. And they played that and it was real corny, real sappy talking about, hey, baby this and baby that. Then they went on with the interview and they were like, do you want to do a freestyle? And the guys were like, yeah, yeah, we want to do a freestyle. That old record, that's old. We're not on that no more. We want we want to do some hardcore stuff now. And they threw the beat on and they went through every gun that exists. They were like, I got my 9mm, my Uzi, bow, bow, bash, crash. It was ridiculous. It was like night and day. And this was all within a year's time. They changed the whole name of the group. I don't recall the name, but it was one that they used to go from the Love Brothers to the fucking gun posse in the matter of a year and a half. And they just made a fool of themselves on the radio. And I was driving home from the studio when I heard that. And I was like, this is ridiculous. So the Chronic is listed as a heavy influence on this album. Now, Master Ace is cagey about what exact influence that was. There's a solid interview with Soren Baker where Master Ace explains how Slaughterhouse was kind of sonically the antithesis of the Chronic. 
He says that that album was very maximal. It was crisp. It was perfect. He said Slaughterhouse was far darker. It was grittier. Um, not really out of design, simply because they didn't have the production ability that Dr. Dre did. So they went in that direction instead. They didn't try to recreate the crispness. They tried to say, well, fuck it. Let's set ourselves up you know, separate from that. But he goes on to say in that interview that his aim was to address major labels signing fake NWA clones. Rappers trying to profit off the gangster rap explosion by speaking on a lifestyle they had no lived experience with. So this was a statement record, a huge statement record, one that could only have come from an MC at the peak of his abilities as a rapper. He essentially called that whole side of the industry out and unwittingly dragged icons into the game, icons of the game into his criticism. And you know, it might be slightly ironic that Eminem cites this record as one of his all-time favorites. And I'll just leave that there with you. You know, you can make of that what you will. Um, but ultimately, the album would further push him away from the mainstream and really set him up for what happened next. But yeah, another another deep concept record. And that Jeep record, yeah, as you said, like it actually became very important, especially when we talk about sitting on Chrome. Yeah, um, I find, <laughs> yeah, it's, and even this, right, kind of has this... Uh, uh, kind of has its essence to it right keeping i think it keeps in with the west coast uh west coast tinge to it um but i don't think this has much uh, of the uh biting criticism um that uh the, uh the slaughterhouse had um i just think this is a very nice album to listen to um i love the inc rides and also the a uh, fat cat riot, which is basically a, uh, a self remix <laughs> that uh, fa- that uh, fat cat uh, as a producer did. Um, just that you know, just that Isley Brothers, oh, just beautiful. Um, uh, turn it up, absolute tune. Uh, shout out to Roy Ayers, of course. Um, and then you know, yeah, freestyle, which was a very interesting track. Uh, for the mind, born to roll. Terra, uh, which is, I think apparently has Hall of Notes, uh, I guess, uh, uh, credited here. So I'm assuming there's a sample in that one as well. Um, but yeah, I just, um, apart from the actual, uh, maybe the, you know, maybe the uh, the title track, Sitting on Chrome. Uh, yeah, there's a couple tracks I'm looking into produce, production wise, um, but that's just my taste. I I just like this album in terms of uh, just putting it on. I like it as a background album. I really like the uh, I really like the lush nature of it. it. Feels much more relaxed from compared to Slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouse just has this you know rabid uh, rabid energy to it. Um, that dirty energy that you were talking about in, in comparison to something like The Chronic. Um, but you know this one, I think leans somewhere in the middle. Um, not as obviously crisp and clean as the Chronic. I mean, what album is as crisp and clean as the Chronic um, in terms of production quality? But um, nineteen ninety nine, probably you know, two thousand one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Funny enough. Um, but yeah, this this sits this sits somewhere in the middle for me in terms of uh, what it's what it's doing um, and what it's supposed to be doing. Um, and I think it I think it succeeds in that. Um, it has this uh, just. Like I said, it just has this relaxed nature to it. Um, yeah, man, I think it's a, I think it's a very enjoyable listen. Um, maybe people find it as uh, I think Wikipedia words this words this album so weirdly. I think in a 
I think it's in Master Race's uh, actual page, but he, they kind of word it in, uh, in essence, that I don't know that he's just a, a what's the word, a, um, you know, crossover record. You know what I mean? Just like, oh, oh, here we go, here we go. <laughs> um, uh, radio friendly, sitting on Chrome. <laughs> What? <laughs> I find that I found the wording so funny, just how how it was worded, uh, you know. And you know, it's true. It's his most commercially successful release. Um, yep. the top twenty on the Billboard hit R&B Hip Hop. So you know, it's not the whoever wrote that on Wikipedia is not wrong. But it's just funny how it's just funny how it was worded. I just found it very interesting. Um, but you know. You can make that argument. It is, you know, kind of, it's definitely softer than Slaughterhouse in a lot of ways. Um, and it's probably much more of a comfortable listen, much more of a replayable listen, um, unless you like that, you know, just kind of like rugged energy of Slaughterhouse. Um, but, yeah, man, I, I enjoyed the album and the, and the, uh, especially that Roy Ayers on Turn It Up. Oh my gosh, that sample. Oh, glorious. Yeah, well, it was a peak. It was definitely the peak of his commercial career. Um, it's the album that sent him back to the underground, and the story is simple. It's a story of stupidity that bleeds, breeds, sorry, intolerable ignorance from a major label system with absolutely no shame whatsoever in any direction. And the story is instructive, not just when reflecting on Master Ace's legacy, but reflecting on everything we see in the mainstream conversation. So it all goes back to the song "Born to Roll." And the story is annoying, to say the least. Um, as I said, it's just another example of ignorance. I'm going to let Master Ace tell the story via an interview uh, from 2021 with Rock the Bells. The third Slaughterhouse single was going to be the title cut. While we were in the process of mixing that song, I decided to do a remix of Jeep. I stumbled across this record in a record store in South or North Carolina. I took it home, I sampled it, and added a bunch of heavy 808s on top. I decided to take the lyrics from Jeep uh, and use it over this new beat. So Master Ace kept the same rhymes from Jeep and laid them over the top of this new instrumental, one that he felt was unique enough to get him an audience further afield than the five boroughs of New York. Unsurprisingly, of course, the label rejected his idea entirely, warning instead to just forge ahead with the title track as the next single. Master Ace refused to give in and got the song placed on the B-side to the title track and things went wild. It caught fire in the Bay Area first, but it quickly spread to every major hip-hop hub on the West Coast. Master Ace continues, All of a sudden, the song had legs of its own. Born to Roll was initially only a B-side, but the radio airplay became so major that they shot a video for it in uh, Los Angeles, and he said that was the first step of me doing something with LA as a backdrop. Shockingly, the label came back, and they said, Oh, this song that we didn't even want you to release is blowing up? Okay, do a whole fucking album of it now, or else. (laughs) So Master Ace continues, that was the challenge for me. I don't think delicious that was something... Delicious Vinyl, by the way. Uh, yeah, Delicious Vinyl. A, lo- a Los Angeles-based <laughs> label. And Master Ace says, I don't think that was something I would have done creatively without that push from the label. I've always been an artist who went with what was the next thing I wanted to do. That wasn't it. So he explicitly says he did not want to do this. The label thought, we've got something here. For whatever reason, it's resonating with car culture. So they said, your next record needs to cater to that. Can you deliver an album that speaks to that? So let's just pull. I just want to just quickly explain what I meant with this. The narrative from the label isn't, oh, we fucked up. You were right. 
we were wrong. How about we just trust you to make the kind of album you want to make and we will market it accordingly because clearly you know your audience and you know your artistry. No shame. They just said, you know what? We didn't fuck up at all. Just make an entire album of this radio song that just randomly blew up that we had no idea. So Slaughterhouse was an album targeting all the fake gangster rappers who were being gobbled up by hungry labels uh, who only cared about one story, and that was money. You know, fuck hip-hop, fuck culture, fuck truth, just get money. That's the point. Asking the rapper who made the anti-chronic album to make an album that sounds like the chronic is about as tone deaf as you could conceivably be. But of course he did it. You know, Master Ace calls this his compromise album, saying, because it wasn't made from a purely creative standpoint, there were outside voices that were kind of telling me this is what I needed to do if I wanted to see real success. So I made the compromise. And to this day, interviewers blindly wander into conversations with him about this album, expecting Master Ace to look fondly upon it as a classic, one that saw him achieve a level of status in the mainstream, you know, not many rappers have come close to. Instead, they usually get blindsided when he says he doesn't like the album at all and likely never will for what he had to give up of himself to create it. And I've always understood that perspective, but you know, being a Jay-Z alumni, of course, I've always seen it a little bit differently. I've always felt there is no shame whatsoever in being mainstream as long as you stay true to who you are and you know i don't think master ace could ever have had a jay-z like career because they're completely different artists and master ace actively rejected this model of trying to be successful on the radio because that's what he was trying to do with these first three records you know he said i want to hear my songs on the radio he consciously gave up this control because he did want to be popular and he felt like his story needed to be told to a wider audience and i fully agree with him and i fully support him in that you know i don't blame him for any of these things i'm most artists would do a thousand things more than just this like most artists would have to compromise themselves consistently to adhere to that major label system you know the master ace just it, it just left such a bad taste in his mouth and he felt like a sellout and you know that was kind of the end and that's when he wanted to go in a completely different direction and that direction was disposable arts and like super independent like genuinely i mean disposable arts the label that it was on folded like a few months after release so the cd didn't even like no one could even get it so that's that's about as underground as you can get they're creating an album that no one can buy and it's 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 you know it's a classic disposable arts yeah um yeah, there's, there's so there's so many. Uh, I think um, it really does. It's one of those albums where you know if, and I I'm sure you're gonna tell this afterwards, but like you know this is supposed to be his last album. Um, that's how he built it. And if you listen to the last track, no regrets. It's so so blisteringly obvious um in in just that one that one song um where you know i'll I'll read some of the lyrics because it's just a really good just a really good song and uh, i remember listening to this live um for the first time uh when he came through the jazz cafe and it was just it was just him uh they had like one spotlight on him um i think i still have the video of it somewhere uh i might might, might be able to uh, show that to well at least Ben but um, yeah if you want to know if you want to see it let me know uh, but yeah it's just him in the spotlight and he's just dropping this dropping this verse and uh, I think this was before I actually listened to Disposable Last so I was just like damn is this a freestyle oh my gosh this is sick right 
<laughs> so la di da, like a year later or something, I listened to the Spose Marks. I was just like, oh, this is, oh, wow. Oh, fuck. This is, oh, shit. You know what I mean? Just that response that um, is warranted. Uh, but yeah, he starts off. If I never recorded another song, if I was wrong and nothing I spitted with ev- was ever strong, if I never perform at another venue, if his genuine love doesn't continue, if none of my records was ever sold, if I fold, never see platinum or even gold, and if no one ever again can recall if I stalled and start working part time at the mall, he mentioned he goes in mentioning, uh, you know, just name dropping for I think very, very you know, good faith reasons, not just, you know, in terms of gassing people up as if these people need that. Um, If I don't do a song to incite millions or get a video done by Hype Williams, there's never a chance again to to be seen on the pages inside of another magazine. The luxuries in life I can't, of course, I can't, of of course, afford. If I never win a billboard or source award, I wouldn't uh, want your pity or your sympathy, even if Marley never put me on the symphony. Uh, goes down to reference uh, just a bunch of cars, you know, chains. Uh, uh, I love this bit where he go, where he goes, uh, big up to Kane, Bismarck, and the Far Side, and of course to all my past label mates. Hope you'll keep on rising like the cable rates. Ayo Premier and Guru, this it goes out to you. Special Ed and Buckshot, it's a shout to you. I don't know if this is the end, but you know, it might be. Big up to Q Tip, Ali Shahid, and Spike Lee. Um, he just it just gets very heartfelt, um, you know, for the majority of the track, and you know the production behind it certainly fits it. Um, but that's disrespecting an entire album that is just um, absolutely outstanding. Um, a I don't know whether you want to consider this like a you know first of its kind in hip hop, where it just has this very precise very uh very focused i've said those two words already um a very precise and focused album uh and concept and storyline um where it, it's just oh it's just absolutely outstanding it's, it's his, he's going to this place this place called IDA and he meets this guy from i forget where it was but somewhere in canada and the dude acting this voice acting is so hilariously just dippy. It's so funny. Just going like, "Oh, you do, you do." Yeah. <laughs> this so- semester they make you make a beat. <laughs> Bro, it's so it's it's actually really accurate for the people I met at university. Like it just <laughs> it threw me straight back to those like overly excitable. Like this place is really great. You're gonna learn it's so, so much preppy, here, right? It's just yeah, so, we're it's gonna so have peppy. a spiritual like, experience oh together. Like you're about yeah. To ha- yeah, we're about to have the time of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> the pace is just there just because he's like, I need to do something. And he's just doing this. Like, here's the ad and he goes for it. It's great. Um, you know, and then he goes into, um, you know, ditching his girl. And then, you know, Jean Grey comes on here for a verse on Hold You. Banger. Uh, Skating. R- roommates, meeting the roommates. And then he takes a walk in Take a Walk featuring Apocalypse um the classes and then he gets into stuff like acknowledge uh unfriendly game uh dear your vet uh planes trains and automobiles uh type i hate with lachey and rod digger top tier track um and then he has dear diary and obviously no regrets by the end of it um it's just a <laughs> it's just a superb fucking album in so many ways but the you know as a 
And I meant to say, by the way, <laughs> we talk, we did talk about the falling season, but it wasn't on a uh, contemporary call. It was when we did our top top ten albums of the decade. Um, so that is, if I remember correctly, episodes 32, 33, and 34. I don't know what number I put <laughs> the falling season in, um, but it's on one of those episodes. So feel free to listen to all three. Um, but yeah, anyway, just, just, so, just so I can get that out of my mind. Um, but yeah, this album as a creative uh, achievement is so fucking underrated to me and deserves to be praised as, you know, one of the best storytelling albums in music um, where I, I, I just don't see, I don't see, I don't hear these things. I don't hear stories this tight. I really don't. Um, you can, you can throw some out there, feel free, but I'm just, I, I don't, hear things where this even the skits the skits are funny the skits are the the, the light-heartedness throughout this album while also having the critique of in this case the industry is just so fucking perfect to me um there's nothing else i could possibly say that um give that you know that people other people haven't said about this album but i feel like you're either one or two people. You are you are a person that hasn't listened to this album, or you're or you're correct, and <laughs> we are correct. Okay, we're fucking correct. This album's fucking top tier, and you can't tell me shit about it. I will die on this fucking hill. All right, get at me, please. If if you don't like this album, you you haven't listened to this album. I'm I'm purely convinced. It's just you can't listen to this album and not enjoy it. At minimum for the for the uh for for what it's trying to achieve for the for the narrative uh achievement uh for the attempt um and for the uh for the critique the subtext the context all of it man is just top tier to me and uh it's so it would have been very fitting if <laughs> I'm glad he didn't stop after this I'm so glad he didn't um, but it w- would have been extremely fitting um, if this was his last album. It really would have been absolutely fitting. Absolutely. And Master Ace had already left the game. Uh, he left the game intentionally before this album because um, he just kept getting fucked over by label, man. Like in the midst of the campaign for Sitting on Chrome, Delicious Vinyl decided to switch distributors meaning that despite the radio hits of the title track and uh, one of the other tracks that blew up, they actually barely sold any singles because they weren't restocking them in the store. So the album just began to dr- drift to the bottom of the pile. So at this point, you know, Master Ace had... So he had one more crack at the mainstream before Disposable Arts. He left Delicious Final, fed up with their bullshit, and I can't blame him. He went over to Big Beat, which was underneath Atlantic at the time, and he began crafting his next album. Two years he spent creating this record, Yet again, the label tried to shoehorn him into a mainstream sound. Diddy had turned the game on its head, you know, Biggie over the top of R&B, mega hits, and the label kept trying to pair Master Ace up with R&B artists like Changing Faces and Brian McKnight, and he kept rejecting this. At this point, he's starting to set his own boundaries and just say, look, man, you guys are being silly. Stop being silly. Let me do my thing. And they would not. They, they decided they would continue to be silly. So he tells Rock the Bells, the music that was coming out of Bad Boy had a lot to do with why I got dropped from my deal at Big Beat. I went back to my roots and was making a boom-bap boom dope rap album. It was about lyricism and the beats were crazy, but Big Beat were like, we need to be on the radio, 
I still had people in my ear. So he continues that he decided to leave the rap game once and for all after this, saying he took a hiatus and focused instead on production, as well as looking into artist management and doing some ghostwriting. He fondly recalls writing for Will Smith's album Millennium, although Will Smith did reject those two tracks, which Master Ace repurposed into his own music. But his medical news uh, changed the course of his career forever. So he was diagnosed with MS in the year 2000, and it was incredibly difficult for him to keep the secret. It, it was until 2010 he kept it till, though, like 10 years where people, only his wife and, and very, very select few people knew that he was suffering. And they were actually traveling through the Czech Republic and um, in 2010, and his van was pulled over and searched. And the police found a bunch of syringes and vials in his bag. And rather than risk having people think he was a heroin addict, he revealed his diagnosis despite being terrified to let people in on his secret. And, you know, he talks at length about how his uh, physical health just deteriorated so rapidly at the end of the 90s and being in pain so bad at times that he thought he'd pinched a nerve at the gym and unable to account for why he was struggling so much. And it's a chronic illness that impacts your nervous system and it has no cure. And when Master Ace was first diagnosed, he felt like it was a death sentence for his career. He didn't think that there was any chance he was going to be able to continue to record and continue to tour. So he decided to throw everything he had behind this one final album, Disposable Arts, believing it would be the last album he was ever capable of recording. And his first non-negotiable was no expectations of success. And his second was no label influence. This was to be his album from the ground up, uh, the first such album of his career, when you think about it. As a deep concept album, you know, Charlie spoke about the concept already. And these two narratives that run concurrently, Master Ace's struggle to live a clean life after being in, incarcerated, and the story of New York in the 90s, gritty, raw, dark, desperate. I see this simply as the perfect expression of the two most potent muses in Master Ace's career. He's always looked at his surroundings and environment for stories, and he's incredibly adept at weaving them. His debut album was fixated on this, telling the story of, you know, the community that he grew up in and giving people without a voice a voice. You know, there was a track about uh, homelessness on his very first album. Like, you know, he, he was just looking around and telling the stories of, of people around him and what they were suffering through. And that would have been his career trajectory had major label influence not snuck in. It's interesting that multiple interviewers have mentioned Kanye West's college series when reflecting on disposable arts because Master Ace is a rapper slash producer although he did start rapping first. He's also uniquely adept at crafting a narrative and funneling the entire sound of an album towards a story, but I think the comparison stopped there. It might sound odd too, but I can hear the influence he had on Eminem so vividly on this record, something that Master Ace acknowledges by paying uh, homage to M's opening bars on Who, Who Knew. I can just see his, his similar cadences, and their vocal tone is, is very similar in a lot of ways as well. And a lot of people said early Eminem sounded like Nas, but to be fair, I felt like Eminem sounded like Master Ace quite a lot. And the skits are obviously legendary, but two songs stand out above others. Not an easy thing to do on such a great album. Acknowledge, of course, uh, one of the greatest songs of the 2000s, Venomous Destruction, with some of the sharpest punchlines in hip-hop history, period. Like, if you if you want to go listen to a diss track, go listen to this. It's it's cutting. Like, it's, it's brutal. And they're just punchlines, man. They're just just punchline rap but it's just done to absolute perfection and so many rappers 
do punchline rap just badly. Terrible punchlines that people are like, oh shit, he's killed, like, roof over your head, like the Doberman said, you know, like the whole Eminem thing. This is yeah, you proper bring that back up, bro. idea. Well, you know, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to upload that. I've only got two YouTube videos on YouTube. I'm going to re upload that and put it on. And I loved Alphabet Why? Soup. <laughs> I loved Alphabet Soup. Um, I listened so closely to pick up each letter and see how Master Ace used it. It was brilliant. And Jean, Jean Grey on Roommates was brilliant as well. <sighs> Great album, man. Great album. And so many things came together to make it iconic. Um, as I said earlier, the label ceased to exist a few weeks after the album dropped. So it's immediately went out of print and the original CD goes for as much as $100 on Discogs and he's venom on this record when he's speaking about the way he's been fucked over by the major label system is palpable he speaks with experience intelligence and power and this is the definition of a classic this album yeah um, and like I said Lucky he and Lucky for us he didn't uh, you know stop after this uh, came through with The Long Hot Summer in 2004 um, this album is so. I mean, it 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 goes across the. Uh, it, it it's clearly a sequel in just how you know obviously that the 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 experiment kind of succeeded, right? That narrative helps, and you know skits that are not too long and are you know just punchy and get to the point. Uh, they work. And that's what that's why Disposable Arse is so, you know, great because it was just that first one, right? But I feel while while, you know, I would agree that Disposable Arse is his best album, uh, A Long Hot Summer is so fucking close to towards being like just right right there. It's right freaking there. Um I would say Long Hot Summer has some of um uh, some of Master Race's best tracks. Um Good Old Love is definitely just top five ace in my mind um and part, just a minor note on going back to disposable last i was i was wondering if you ever if you ever wondered about that uh, that car seat that he's sitting on in the album cover because uh i'm i'm of the i'm of the thought that uh the car seat is kind of like a a hint towards the sitting on chrome and it's like i don't have a you know don't have a car anymore kind of thing uh, down to the bare bones kind of thing. Uh, anyway, just wanted to throw that on, throw that out there. Uh, but yeah, long hot summer. Um, I like the I like the story here. I prefer I I prefer the story of this over disposable arts personally. Um, even though I say disposable arts is the better album, does that make sense? Probably not. But let me cook. Um, I just, <laughs> I love Fats Melody, bruv. I just, I just really love him. I, I love him to death. He's, he's so fucking great. Just as an addition, there's no, there's no like cameo, uh, that just upgrades an album with just having Fats Belvedere just, uh, you know, just talking, uh, on his absolutely fucking great. Um, but yeah, good old love, uh, the grinds, beautiful. Uh, soap, soda and soap, another Jean Grey banger, a uh, featured banger. Uh, Brooklyn Masala, really love that track. Just as a, uh, just as a, uh, you know, just me and a girl outside of a grocery store. Come on, bro, meet cute. There is nothing better than a meet cute, bro. Nothing better. Fuck you lot, and on fucking Tinder and that shit, man. Nothing better than a fucking meet cute. Trust me, okay. What? Nothing better. What's 
Uh, wh- what is it? What? what Brooklyn Masala or just my my side note on saying fuck Tinder people? <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with Tinder? Come on, man, just keep chilling now. What's, what's wrong with Tinder? Some of us, some <laughs> no, of us just need date, dating apps in general, bro. That's that's my that's my that's my. Some of us need the dating apps, man. It's not easy to meet people. I know people need quote unquote the dating apps these days. I know, but dating I need apps the are just apps, man. I know. I'm just saying you're being duped. Like they're they're not built to quote unquote gain relationships. They're just oh, dating no. miners like all like all the other social media apps. That's all they are. Yeah. They're not. It's a social media care. app. They don't care whether you get love, right? They may put think, on the adverts that you know find your spark. About, or do you the fuck they call do, it, you, you know? do you want to date anyone you've ever conversed with on Twitter? No. So that's pretty no. much what dating apps are. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Uh, maybe maybe a, uh, I'm joking. Um, but yeah, Brooklyn Masala, just a just a great description, a uh, great song, just about a meet you, about just uh, seeing someone uh, in the corner store. It's great. I met her on the corner of Gates and Bed Stuy. Just stop there. The imagery, like I've never been to, I've never been to New York, never been to Brooklyn, never been to Gates and Bed Stuy specifically. Um, if I go on Google Maps, if I'm that dedicated to to gaining the imagery, I would, and you would probably get it doing that, right? But just think of that imagery so so easy just off that one off that one line it was only right that i approached and said hi because she looked like no other chick i ever saw she was on her way coming up at the corner store i asked her if could i carry your bags and walk her home i could tell she was uh, new in new york just from her tone because she wasn't that typical rude and ignorant teeth sucking and eye rolling telling me to leave her alone we dipped and we yapped we chit and we chat about this and that and where she lived at this may sound kind of wu-tang clanish but this butter pecan honey was not Spanish, which um great because there was a lot of times where we heard that uh, in our Book of Wu series of, uh, you know, Wu-Tang members talking about women in, uh, you know, in reference to food and they were horribly cringe. Um, so it's nice to, <laughs> it's nice I to agree. hear one that, I, I mean, he's called it. He said, it, this may sound kind of Wu-Tang clanish and it does sound of kind of Wu-Tang clanish, but the only difference is it's not cringe. So well done to Master Ace once again for just uh, fucking nailing it. Um, but yeah, just a just a good track. Really love that. Um, really love that energy, and that's just a good example. I feel of just that story within a story, um, and why I love a long hot summer because it's not just it's it's not lin- linear. Well, it's linear in some ways, but I mean in terms of like song to song, where every song in Disposable Arts kind of you know, moves the overall moves the overall story along. But then on Long Hot Summer, it's kind of has this openness towards it where, you know, he could have put Brooklyn Masala, you know, anywhere on this album apart from obviously, you know, the after party where, you know, shit goes south in the storyline. But, you know, he could have put it anywhere, I feel. Um so I like the loosen I like the loosen nature, just a little bit of this album. Um I love the summer the the summer in general just uh, as a as a uh, an addition to the concepts i love the picture painting on this album it just paints a much more uh a much more i think vivid i would th- i would say this is a little bit more vivid than something like disposable arts where you know that obviously kind of goes off the back of uh you know going to the going to you know you reference uni right when we're talking about the uh ida school and you know meeting people that are so peppy at uni it's like oh it's gonna be great what lessons do you have this is you know 
you can imagine that for yourself, of course. Um, but I feel like we can all have we all have a long hot a long hot summer in our minds, right? There's always that we all have that one summer where just shit happens. Um, and this one is, I think, uh, probably not as relatable <laughs> in terms of our space and obviously just ending up at the uh, ending by going to freaking jail, um, which I don't know about Ben, but I haven't uh, ended the summer in jail. Um, but, you know, as a, as you know, just a summer concept and a storyline that happens during the summer, I like the, I like that how, I like how you can possibly apply it to your own. Um, and yeah, I just, I, the, the, this album and Disposable Last just dips in, dips back and forth in between, which is my favorite. But um, yeah, there's just some really good tunes on it. Yeah, it's amazing, man. It wasn't like Master Ace was riding a wave of critical and commercial success from his greatest album. <laughs> no, since, no, oh, yeah. Since the album oh, went yeah. out of print so quickly, it barely sold and it barely got any press. So Hip Hop DX and Rap Reviews actually gave Disposable Arts a review, but compare that to some of the other iconic albums from around that time and check the difference in how many reviews there are. Like, it doesn't even have a Metacritic page. It wouldn't even come close to it. And so... In an interview with Hip Hop Canada to promote a long hot summer, Master Ace said, Life in the rap game has been a roller coaster ride of emotions. At times I have felt very frustrated and bitter towards the industry, and then other times I recognize how fortunate I have been to be a part of this thing. I've seen things and been places that many people will never get to experience. I've been able to balance out the negative feelings I have at times by recognizing all the positive things that have happened in my life as a result of this thing called hip hop. And I like that. I like that quote a lot. Um, and you know, yeah, Charlie pretty much said it, uh, this, this album though, I'll say, uh, other outside of the music in terms of just the visibility of it is the best way to say it. Um, it got the attention he richly deserved 78 on Metacritic reviews from at least 15 major outlets, most likely far more because Metacritic doesn't really, uh, have all of them. It even charted, which is pretty huge considering what happened with his last album, 44 on the US Independent Albums chart and 82 on the R&B Hip Hop chart, which is really epic. And it was actually meant to be as a prequel to Disposable Arts. And I really love this section from the Pitchfork review written by Jamin Warren. Surprisingly, the bane of random play, aka the skits, pulls the album together thematically. Rather than wasting time with phone calls from friends or snippets of orgiastic female moans... (laughs) Bro, oh, God, I swear to God, so many phone calls and so oh. many moaning skits. I don't ever hey, want to hear. You're doing great, man. Keep it up, bro. It's like, all right, bro. But the worst was when they brought the the female and the the, fem- the phone skits, and it'd be like Jay Z album, and some woman's calling him <laughs> and saying, "You fucking, you're a cunt. I fucking hate you. You fuck. Like, I don't need to listen to that. Okay, like that doesn't need to be on your album." Keep it on your answering machine, bro. We don't need to hear these <laughs> stupid fucking phone answering skits. Answering machine skits. Oh, fuck. Oh, bro. So anyway, Ace Weaves' story, and I'll continue what uh, Mr. Warren said about this album. Ace Weaves' story of his relationship with the fictional hustler Fats Belvedere. The contrast of Master Ace's, Master Ace's dedication with Fats's unscrupulous money chasing provides a glimpse of Ace within his Brooklyn context. While Fats may earn more money than Ace could earn in a lifetime, it's Ace's devotion to the art that Fats respects and ultimately strengthens their friendship. In spite of the world pitted against both of them, they find solace in hip-hop's bosom. Um, so he actually says it's, it's a legitimate motif on a hip-hop album. 
and the the review was very critical of hip hop in general. So I'm not I'm not here to promote Mr. Warren's review. He was just shitting on mainstream hip hop, like which I guess he can shit on mainstream hip hop. But anyway, I thought that was very fascinating. It's the story of Master Ace's career playing out on wax, and it's masterful again. I didn't think it was quite on the level of disposable arts, but it's very close, as Charlie said, and I think that's as high a praise as you could give. Um, brilliant album. And then we get, uh, did you do the Doom one? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Son of Yvonne? Yep. Son of Yvonne. Um, brilliant album. Very interesting album. Um, I don't think I listened to it, uh, uh, mm, yeah, I probably listened to it a few years ago. Um, it's the first time in a while that I've listened to it, and uh, yeah, it's, Jin is obviously very much shorter than the rest of these albums. Um, it's only cracks. It doesn't even crack 40 minutes. Um, and uh, the production is relatively uh, easy to glean. It's just that, you know, from the MA Doom, is this is a, this is a, a kind of like a Doom production project. Um, apparently it says that uh, he didn't actually like directly collaborate with Ace, but just gave him the green light to just use whatever, uh, which, you know, shout out to MF2, my guess, on that front of just, you know, being expedient and just going like, you know, I got stuff to do or something, I got whatever, but, you know, feel free, go for it. Um, yeah, so if you if you are a regular listener of, uh, you know, Special Herbs, which is MF Doom's, uh, you know, production series, um, then, you know, you, you will listen to this and gain a lot in terms of, oh, that's the, oh, that's this one, oh, that's this one. You're gonna have a lot of those moments, uh, but for me, that hasn't uh, you know dive, deep dived into special herbs too much. Um, I mean, even with that, it's actually kind of you know this has um, stuff from King Gidra and stuff like that. So you know, there's some where I've where I listen to it and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a uh, yeah, it's from um, you know just having that kind of thing in my uh, thing going on. Um, but for the album itself uh, and Master Ace's side of it. Um, this is a uh, an album concept album dedicated to uh, his departed mother at that point, um, and you know it's kind of where where the other uh, where the other albums uh, from Disposable Arts onwards feel like a feature film. This one seems like a short film, um, and it's very tight. It's very concise, and uh, gets to the point. And uh, good features as well. Pav Bundy on Crush Hour. Uh, Big Daddy Kane and MF Doom on Think I Am, very very top tier on that one. Um, but yeah, you know, <laughs> I love the I love the hotel leftover skit. Very very fascinating. Just from uh, just <laughs> just in con- just in the in the content of it, and just uh, you know the 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 hose leaving. But Master Ace is like, hey, I I'm still about. <laughs> so I was, I was going on. I I get it. It's it's. It's interesting, like it, just going through that. This kind of um, this album, kind of, I think, while it has moments where he's directly mentioning, you know, re- directly talking to his mother, right? Um, a lot of the mid of the uh, middle of the album kind of goes into basically just his kind of like cold chilling history. Um, I think there's a phone call. Um, funny, I'm talking about phone <laughs> phone call skits. <laughs> a phone call skit. Um, with uh, him and uh, I think it's Big Daddy Kane uh, saying like where you at and he uh, and he's just uh, overslept. Um, so you know this album kind of I think drifts from the uh, drifts from the mother side of things. Um, but when it gets to that, when it gets to those particular um, just mentions of her and uh, just you know general 
uh, general words towards her. Um, it's it's full of heart, as you can as you can easily imagine from someone as a you know just as a as mentally uh, as visually clear um, and lyrically clear um, as uh, as master as master race. Um, I forget which track it is near the end. Uh, I think it's I did it. I'm just gonna have a quick look. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a really good, uh, really solid album. I think like it's probably a good start for anybody who actually just wants to get into uh, wants to try Master Race, but not actually, you know, dedicate an hour of their life. Maybe um, it's a good. I think it's a good. Um, what's the word? Uh, good. Uh, good gateway project. I feel you know you have the Big Daddy Kane and MF Doom features in there. You know it's all MF Doom production, so you know that might benefit you um regardless uh, you just see an mf doom production you're like oh yes go on then you know feel free and uh you know it doesn't always it, it, go, it goes kind of back and forth uh, between like an a and b story so uh you know kind of it does a little bit does something a little bit different on that front but yeah man really like, i like this album so it's, it's definitely um very replayable i love the I love the D ski intro at the start. It's just him, just like him as a youngster introducing himself. I love that. I love that uh, ability to just really think back. You know, um, I was talking. Side note: I was talking to. Uh, I was at like a party recently, and uh, this um, this uh, woman was talking to me about the Fablemans that she watched, um, which is obviously for those who haven't watched it, it's basically. A Steven Spielberg um, film about his life before he got into film, um, and this kind of and Master Race can do that on wax, and he does it so vividly, it's it's absolutely outstanding. Which we will get into with the falling season. <laughs> so I'll, I'll I'll stop there. Yeah, I mean this one is um, it's interesting because it's not an official MF Doom collab album. We didn't speak about it during our Doom retrospective. If you've ever spun Doom's instrumental series, Special Herbs, you'll know these beats very, very well. They're etched into my mind for eternity for just how smooth those tapes were. Like, so smooth, bro. And Master Ace explains why. He says, we have met a couple of times, but we never really had a real conversation or talked about collaborating or anything like that before this. But I'm definitely familiar with what he's doing and what he has been doing. His beats were very quirky. Quirky is the right word. Beats that I wouldn't have chosen for myself necessarily, but I like the challenge of rapping to something that is a little bit off the beaten path of what I was normally used to rapping over. So initially the plan was to take it as a mixtape um, and take that monetary and lyrical pressure off, but it progressed when it became clear to people hearing it that it should be sold, it was good enough to be sold. And Master Ace explained that changing it from a mixtape to an album and changed his entire style. He felt that because there was money behind it. He needed to really sharpen the narrative, and it is a beautiful one, dedicated to Master Ace's mother, who sadly passed away in 2005. And his stories of her are so vivid, and they're laid with emotion and imagery. Some of the best work he's ever done. Um, it's brilliant, man. It is. It's a brilliant album. I don't have much else to say. These are this three pack of albums is probably one of the best three album runs in hip-hop history by a long, long stretch. Like, it is right up there, and it never gets talked about enough. Like, just unbelievable three albums. And then The Falling Season, fucking four, man. Like, it's crazy. I was going to say. Do I want to go four? Do I want to bump yeah, up to four? four. Right? <laughs> uh, Son of Yvonne was what I meant to mention uh, as a particular, uh, as a track uh, dedicated to the same track. fashion. 
Brilliant track. Absolutely just, yeah, once again, very vivid. Um, but yeah, The Falling Season. Um, I talked about this in the top 10 of the decade, so I won't go too deep into it. Feel free to go spin that one, please, because uh, I do just... I, I, I will drool over this album uh, for a while for the rest of my life because I think, especially for what I do um, as a writer... Um, as a storyteller, um, as as a as a as a calling to myself, right? This album did so much for me at the time I first listened to it. Um, while it may, I while it may not be you know disposable arts or long hot summer to people, um, it's that to me because I really really enjoyed the fact that you know while while Son of Yvonne comes, I think kind of sets up what the falling season actually becomes um because someone if you've on kind of dips dips and dips between times of his life um and the falling season focuses purely um on his youth and uh, i think it's him going through high school yes it's going through him going through high school and this all happens in this is his longest album i think it's an hour and 15 i think sitting on chrome maybe a maybe around that same time as well um but this album's so long but it but it goes through like a dream for me for me it may not for others right because at the end of the day it is (laughs) it's 75 minutes so it may just you know drag on for you but it really doesn't for me personally um and it it happens for me personally because because of the skits in some way right where you he starts off um, you know, summer's end. He needs to find another school quickly. He was supposed to move, but he's not. Supposed to, he needs to find another school, and uh, you know, three thousand Avenue X with your old Droog. I didn't even clock uh before before that. Yeah, the, your old Droog was on that. Um, yeah, so he's on that, producing a solid verse as well. Um, and you know, they get there, and they they get to the new school. Fats Belvedere's explaining, you know, this. Da, 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 da. And he bumps into you know Duval, which is obviously um, Master Race's uh, real name, and uh, you know then, then bumps into him as a kid. And then you have Young Black, in- Young Black Intelligent, which is again one of my favorite Master Race tracks, probably my favorite Master Race track, um, just from the just from the simplicity of it of what it's supposed to be. And then you add on that, uh, or add on the. Um, the hypnotic brass ensemble and then Chuck D at the end with this spoken word like verse at the end stuck in my brain ever since I listened to this album. Um, all of that. Uh, and then he, you know, does uh, football tryouts, which, you know, kind of harkens back uh, to a couple of, he's mentioned, you know, football, uh, American football, football, uh, a few times over his discography. And he does it very specifically here. Uh, Miss Bus Driver, very fascinating track. Uh, Mathematics, a coach's speech was just hella funny as a skit. Uh, the only track I probably don't rate out of here is Bang Bang, but that's probably just more of the production than anything. Juanita Estefan, just <laughs> great fucking interpolation and homage to obviously Benita Applebaum. Uh, from Tribe Called Quest, you get that very specifically from the lyrics. Um, I love that track to death. Um, Total Recall, outstanding story of me though. 
fuck. Again, these last like these last tracks and last testimony tracks that Ace does. This is this story of me is up there with with no regrets in terms of that. It's it's while no regrets obviously has the b- bigger meaning towards it and bigger context um, as it was supposed to be his last track ever. Damn, this track hits. It's seven minutes. It's nearly f- eight minutes, and it's so fucking good. It's so fucking good. So fucking high quality. I love it to death. I love this album to death. It means so much to me that I probably can't explain within this episode. I've probably, hopefully, explained it. I don't remember specifically what I said from <laughs> from the top ten of the decade episode, um, but I remember gushing over it a lot, and I'm gushing over it again um, because just this was the first Master Race album I listened to, and um, you know, it it just it just hits that much harder every time I listen to it. I love the I love the I love the storyline. I love the I love the time that passes throughout where he starts off as a freshman and then he ends with the graduation. I just I love it, man. I love the storytelling of it. It's it's it's, it's a really good story. I just enjoy it uh, immensely. Yeah, man, I can't even say any better than that. I knew that Charlie would come with some fire on this, and so I would just defer to him. But look, Master Ace's career, I just want to sum it up real quick because it's Please a do. real fascinating one. <clears throat> this is something we've never really done in a retrospective. I can't think of too many artists who... It's hard to say because it wasn't like he completely adhered to the major label system at the start and just like gave everything to it. He dipped his toe in it, you know, he allowed them to choose a single or he allowed them to, you know, talk about the treatment for a video. And it just got a little bit more and a little bit more with every project until Slaughter, uh, sorry, sitting on Chrome, obviously, where the label pretty much told him the exact sound he needed to do to succeed. And so he did it. And then he was so turned off by it. It hurt him so much that he just left. He left that label system completely went out into the wilderness for a while. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And, you know, we always talk, and I always talk about this, I have so much respect for any artist who actively rejects any kind of critical or commercial success. It's not critical, sorry, just commercial success. Sorry, excuse me for coughing. Um, I've got a cold or something. I'm always sick. I'm always sick. It's too cold. I hate winter. But, yeah, man, look, I just think anyone who is, like, because he had the ability. He clearly had the ability. I mean, he was writing for Will Smith. He was ghostwriting for Bismarcky. He was ghostwriting for very popular rappers. He had the ability to be successful. And if he continued down that path and maybe continued to compromise himself, he may have ended up in that mid-90s boom bap boom where, you know, Nas was going number one was with It Was Written, uh, which is a wild thing. I think he spent four weeks in a row at number one with that album. You know, that's that's unheard of. That wouldn't happen now. Like even now I was doing Magic 2 or something like that, it's probably not going to chart top 10. So Master Ace could have been on that wave if he wanted to, but he didn't want to. He wanted to go in a different direction and he bravely chose not the bright lights, not the commercial success. He worked behind the scenes and threw everything he had behind that one album. And it's iconic. Like it's one of the greatest. If you've never heard it, Disposable Arts, please go listen to it. It is absolutely required reading if you're just interested in hip hop in any way. And he's created this legacy now where people are starting to talk about him as a top 10 MC, top 15 MC, top 20 MC. You know what I mean? Like it's it's unbelievable. And it's come out. I'm very curious as to what Charlie's doing right now. He's all over this. Focusing, sorry. 
<coughs> excuse me for coughing. God, I don't want to cough into the mic. But no, Master Ace, like, you know, a lot of artists from the 80s and early 90s, like genuine icons, are completely forgotten. People don't talk about them anymore. But Master Ace, people talk about him all the time, despite the fact that he never achieved that critical and commercial success in the early the early 90s with his, that his counterparts achieved. So I think that's a testament just to his skill. And as I said right at the start, the only reason he had a career in rap at all is because he is so supremely talented. He didn't try. He didn't force it. He didn't. He wanted to go to uni, uh, get his degree, and start working in the industry. That was his goal. But he was just such a peerless MC that they just gave him a chance, and he took that chance and has become one of the most influential MCs of all time by far. Because this is a one of those things where your favorite rappers favorite rapper. You know, a lot of people talk about that. This is one of those ones where a lot of rappers, if you listen to interviews as I have with so many rappers, Master Ace is regularly referenced as a huge influence on people. And I don't think the wider conversation talks about him anywhere near as much as it should. Yeah, definitely. Um, for the sake of uh, time and just not going too deep, uh, we'll finish there <laughs> and top onto the light. Like, uh, if you have anything, Ben? Uh yeah, I went to a concert on Sunday night. I went to O seven O Shake. Dish. Shout out to shout out to the label for hooking me up. I'm just gonna be hundred percent honest. Tickets were tickets were free, so I'm very thankful for that. Um it was brilliant. It really was brilliant. I don't go to many live shows because I don't have a lot of money. And I don't experience it very often, you know, it's such a different experience just but the weird thing is, so I've obviously have my hearing, I'm old, so my hearing is destroyed. I'm actually about to spend thousands of dollars quietening down my motorbike because I'm too old and it makes me so sad. I'm like, bro, I need, I want to be like a rebellious, loud motorbike person pissing everyone off, but my ears hurt. It hurts my poor, fragile ears and I get tinnitus. So I wear earplugs at every concert I go to now and it is such a different experience. It is not as good an experience. It really isn't. But, you know, it, it's so weird when you have this experience of, like, how annoying tinnitus is and how debilitating it can be. And then you go to a concert that's, like, ear-bleedingly loud and you're looking around and no one's wearing ear protection and you're just sitting there like, oh, my God, you guys. I want to just go up to them and say, look, it's okay to do this a couple of times, but don't do it too many times because... You'll get to 35 and you won't be able to sleep because you'll just hear this loud ringing in your ear. But aside from the earplugs, the concert was amazing. 070 Shake was amazing. The energy in the room was just beautiful. And it was all up down to her. She was the one who controlled everything. It was just her on stage and a DJ. And she was I feel like she had a fair bit to drink on stage as well. And she got a little bit sloppier as the set progressed. But that just made it more warm and more human. It was more of a human experience after that. Like... It was it was life affirming. It was, and you know, she would stop the show and just talk to us and thanks. She at one point she thanked us for the very thing we just praised Master Ace for. She said, "I'm not making music to chart. I'm not making music to succeed. I just want to make what's true to me." And she said, "The fact that I can come all the way to Australia and like you know pack out a show of people who just want to hear me and my music is special and 100% correct." And the thing is, you know, you would think that everyone just went there off the strength of her Kanye collaborations. No, man, everyone knew every fucking word to every fucking song in that set. And it was, it was beautiful. It was lovely to see. So shout out 070 Shake. That was, um, that was a really solid con concert. And I'm pretty, pretty stoked that I went there, but that's about it in terms of a lighter note, not much else light happening at the moment. 
Yeah, life sucks. Tottenham sucks. What else is there? Nice. Hey, come on now. Just relax on that. We got, <laughs> b- we got. Hey big man, Ange, you're bro. Get, you might be getting Mbappe. Yeah. Tottenham are interested. <laughs> I mean, Tottenham are very interested. I've heard rumors <laughs> that Tottenham would make it would be open to a move from Mbappe. <laughs> but Ben, I am interested in Marion Normani. Um, just breaking news. Just wanted to drop that here. Exclusive. Uh, I'm into. Da- I'm interested in dating Ashanti. Um, you've heard it here I first, know that Ashanti does listen breaking, to the pod and she hasn't news. reached out to you yet. So I don't think it's going to happen. Break, breaking news. Yeah, but Ben, you know, a lot is happening behind the scenes, right? You know, just like inter- intermediaries, you know, just having uh, having the dialogue, you know what I mean? So yeah. we'll, we'll set... We'll, Her we'll, people's we'll, with we'll your people it. and, you know... Uh, you, you, my people <laughs> <laughs> They'll set up a meeting. Oh, I find that so funny. Hey, bruv, even Chelsea, bruv, but I'm just like, he's going to Saudi Arabia. Did you see how much he's getting? 1.1 billion. <laughs> bruv, the whole package that's, is 1.1 billion That's got to be a joke. Bruv. That is absurd. That's got to be a joke. That's that makes be no a fucking sense. The sports washing is sports washing right now. Just, re- just recognise, ladies and gentlemen, that this is basically Qatar paying Saudi Arabia through sport. Like, this is literally what's going on. Like, it's just, it's this is, this is like, this is like oil trading, just much smaller and much more uh, culturally relevant. <laughs> That's all this is. It's if they gave crazy. you, Charlie, if Qatar or Saudi said to you, $1.1 billion to be the face of our football league, would you take that? That Would you say yes? But the thing is, bruv, he might only be there for a year. Like they're fully expecting him to dip and just go to Real Madrid afterwards. But so, I'm serious, at this bro, point, but who, he's just who being t- given a bag for a sabbatical. That's all How he's been. That's that all he's down. getting. He's getting six hundred plus per, in his pocket just to play for a year and then go ahead and just like you know, all right, let's get serious now and play for Real Madrid and actually get some trophies. Who, like, <laughs> but who could turn that down? You can't. It's one point one billion dollars. No, this is the thing, right? I feel like this is some. And we've talked. We've we've talked. God, the amount of times we've just dedicated light and those to fucking sports washing it's just fucking stupid yeah. well fuck um, we just hate capitalism <laughs> it's, it's, it's hilarious right but um the 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 thing about this is is that i don't put the onus on players to actually not take the bag i don't expect them to not take the bag they are sports people they are which is a perishable uh, thing yeah. right. It's not. It's not art. Where you know, barring a extreme injury, you you won't have to. You don't have to stop after the age of whatever. Let's just say thirty five, for example. Right. You don't have to stop there when you're an artist of some fashion or you know an accountant. Right. If you're in sports, you have a limited time to do something to do what to do the thing you either love or just really fucking good at. Right. I get it. I completely get it, right? Um, obviously, them uh, some some people grandstanding aside, <coughs> Jordan Henderson, right, etc. All of them people aside, right? You know that's that is what it is, right? If they if they want to say that and then go ahead and then just go get money from them from the exact people they were saying, you know, are criminals, which they are. Well, you know, these these are people that commit, um, you know, war crimes and just general crimes within their own country. This is a fact, right? Uh, from you know world law, but uh, I don't put the onus on players to actually you know have a backbone. I really don't because 
like I said, they have a perishable skill that hap- that you know they're in their prime for a certain amount of years. I I I get it, but it, for me, it's about the entire bodies. It's these bodies. It's FIFA. It's UEFA. It's all these people that actually you know just letting this happen. That you know sports bodies, governing bodies, IOC, all of this that are letting sports washing happen. Um, I think there was something in the NBA where, like, a Saudi, uh, well, the the Saudis, right? Like, a, like there's different ones. The Saudis were like um, thinking of investing in like a mi- minority stake in a team or something like that. I forgot what the particular news article was. Um, apologies, but you know, they're not. Nobody's safe. Nobody's safe. The only thing is, is I put the onus on the powers that be. I don't put the onus on killing fucking Mbappe. I don't care if he gets 600 mil. It's crazy money. Of course it is. Right? And he, like I said, he'll probably just go there, play for a year, and then go to Real Madrid. That's that's basically what's um, the writing on the wall. Right? I don't put the onus on him. I don't put the onus on football players. They're, they're, they're basically contract workers. They're literally contract workers. They get given a contract. They work. That's, <laughs> that's what they do. I get it. They don't have a union, as far as I know. Do players have a union? I don't. Think, I don't know if they do or not. If they did have a union, then then I'd put the onus on them. Then I would, but I don't think they have one. So if they don't, it is what it is. Like, they're, they're, they're individual parties. They have their agents. They do what they want. I don't really care if Kylian Mbappe goes to Saudi Arabia. I'm not going to watch the games or anything. I might see a couple of goals on Twitter if it comes through. You know, but that's about it. Um, side note, the Women's World Cup is happening, which is something we probably should have been talking about. Um, I do wonder if Ben's watching that, in, considering he watched the, uh, you know, the Men's World Cup uh, in Qatar. Uh, don't want to... Ben? Ben? No? No? Oh, Ben's gone. Ben has left the building. He, I'm he's still here. <laughs> no, I haven't watched any Women's World Cup yet. Okay. <laughs> it's, in Austra- it's going on in uh, Australia, isn't it? It literally, Yes, Australia and New Zealand. Um, that's, that's, kind of, that's half the reason why I asked, but um, yeah. I don't want to put you in the spot, but anyway, um, you know that's you definitely don't um, want to put me on the spot. But I directly put you on the spot, and then when you didn't <laughs> respond, I was like, "Hey Ben, you gonna respond to me putting you on the spot? Don't want to do it, but I've done it now, so you're in it. So just respond. <laughs> <laughs> you can put me on the spot. Doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, but yes. Um, anyway, that's the that's the tirade over. Um, I put uh, on my light note. I do have a couple of interviews. Rewind interviews dropping. Um, one with a my first queer artist as 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 far as I know. I mean, main well actually, Junie was queer actually. So um, there you go. Shout out to Junie. Did you um, interview so, Junie? I forgot about that. Fuck. Yeah, I interviewed Junie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go uh, listen to that again. I must have listened yeah, to go, it at the time. That's, that's, a, that's a big W, man. That's a huge W. <laughs> Yeah, shout out to Judy, shout out to Judy, doing bits yeah, still. Fuck yeah. Um, but yes, I interview a queer artist, let's just say that, um, from New York. Um, and uh, that was very fascinating. We did record one, and then it got, uh, then uh, his, uh, I think his laptop just went kaput. Um, shout out to Logic um, as a as a uh, recording platform, just, uh, you know, not uh, backing up anything. Um, but yeah, we did it again, and we uh, just we just have fun with that. The fact that we kind of did pretty much all of the interview, and then kind of had to do it again. Uh, we just had fun with that, um, and I also have an interview with uh, the first, well, one of the first people I interviewed uh, for the Fifth Element all those years ago. Uh, I'm gonna hit his, uh, go gonna go to his spot on Wednesday. 
and uh, we're just going to catch up and I'm really, really looking forward to that. I've been wanting to talk to him for ages um, and I'm also on that day uh, going to see uh, Birmingham uh, rapper Sanity as well uh, with uh, hopefully Ryan, um, shout out to Ryan, who's going to come through as well and uh, that's going to be hopefully very enjoyable. I don't know if I can take my camera in there, but I'm taking my camera anyway, go fuck yourself and uh, it's going to happen either way. Uh, but yeah, ladies and gentlemen, with another two-hour episode, we'll leave it there. Uh, <laughs> so, gentlemen, for the Fifth End Podcast Network, this has been Digging Digits. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've been Charlie Taylor, Fifth Element. Maybe you've been kind of hip-hop numbers. We all hope you all have a good week. We, well, we shall always, always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen. All right, peace. Digging in Digits is produced by me and Ben Carter. The show is edited by me. Music for the show is Pete's Midi Games by Bonus Points. Thanks to Chill Music for the ability use. Socials for the development, hip hop by numbers, bonus points, and Chill Music will be in the full show notes as well as the names of projects reviewed wherever you're listening. This has been a 5 EPM production. Thanks for spending time with us. We'll see you next time on Digging in the Digits.